Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, and I'd like to read the first seven verses. And I want us to think about this man, Elijah, who went to the brook Cherith. And our title is just simple, one word, the name of this prophet, Elijah. That's the, that's the title of the message, Elijah. Verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. It came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had not been no rain in the land. Now, Father, for a few moments as we minister this word, we pray that you give us ears to hear. You know all the people and situations on our heart that even as I'm praying right now, we're thinking about. And so in our hearts, we're interceding for them. Father, I pray that those that hear us week by week on the radio, that their lives would be encouraged. Father, speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about the background of this man by the name of Elijah. It just tells us he's from an area called Gilead. James gives us a little more information regarding how he prayed and then prayed again. But I want you to know that the circumstances and the times in which he lived were the reason I believe God raised up in Elijah. If you have difficult times, challenges. God needs somebody that will come along and speak clearly during that particular era. The scripture tells us that this man, Elijah, being a Tishbite, had a confrontation with Ahab. But what's the context of this? The preceding verses of the chapter before this tells us that Ahab was a man that did more wickedly than any other king that had lived before him. That same description is given of his father. Can you imagine having two generations in which the royal power was so bad that the testimony is nobody has ever lived as evil as you have lived? That's what was declared. And then on top of all of this with all of the idolatry in the land, the iniquity that permeated that particular area, Ahab goes off and marries a pagan woman by the name of Jezebel. Her name is so infamous that there's probably not a person in here that's ever met a young lady who was named Jezebel. That name is not beautiful. It's not a name that's pretty in the Bible. But Jezebel had 850 false prophets that she fed every day at the table, their taxpayers' money. Bible said she was a wicked woman, had control over her husband, even to the point that she taught the children of Israel to live lives in fornication and sin. She was not a pleasant lady. She was vindictive. She was strong. She was the kind of a person that would take charge in a situation and manipulate and lie. She even had one man murdered 
stoned to death because he wouldn't sell his property to Ahab the king. And when royalty and politics and culture collude together to produce iniquity in a generation, then God needs an Elijah to come and be a spokesperson. How wicked were they in their politics? Well, they formed alliances with nations for wrong reasons. They exploited the people that they had authority and power over. Ahab was a man that had very little backbone but would allow his wife to make decisions that he should have made. And because he would refuse to stand up to her, she stood up to him. She stood up for the throne on behalf of the whole nation. The Bible says that he had planted groves. They worshipped the god Baal. She had false priests. That means false prophets, a false liturgy, a false religion. Multitudes of people bowed down because King Ahab and Jezebel bowed down. But yet there was still a remnant of people that believed in the true God. That's usually how it is. No matter how bad society becomes, no matter how difficult things seem to be, God tends to have a person. God tends to have a family. He usually has a remnant of people that refuse to bow their knees. Every generation needs someone like an Elijah. And in these days in which we're living now, which are the last days, we talk about how wicked it is, but God still needs an Elijah company of people that will be bold in their faith and not ashamed of what they believe. And notice what this man said in his contact with Ahab. This man looked right into the face of the king and said, No rain until I command it to come. Kings aren't used to having people talk to them that way. People in positions of power prefer people to defer to who they are, to defer to their authority, to bow and acquiesce to who they are. But not Elijah. He was different. I'm impressed by him. You think of the annual president's breakfast or the prayer breakfast that they have. And they invite some of the most popular and influential ministers from across the nation to come and be in the prayer breakfast with the president. But did you know that in order to attend that, you get a piece of paper that it describes to you the protocol for your attendance, that you are not to directly address the president, that you are not to touch on or pray on any political situation, and you're not to say anything that could be embarrassing to the White House or to the holder of the office of the president. Can you imagine Elijah attending something like this? But most preachers would be enamored with power and flattered by the invitation and so grateful to be there that they would compromise what they believe in order to have attendance there. Not Elijah. I think some of you knew that many years ago when I was invited to pray up at the state legislature, I've got, I got one of those little letters too. said, if you're going to pray, here are the things you should say or not say in order to not create any difficulties. Well, behind me was the lieutenant governor, and then all of these other people that were there in the chamber they said, try to keep your prayer to so many seconds. I wanted to make sure I covered everything I wanted to pray, so I actually wrote it out. I'm not really a man that writes out prayers, but I wrote out that one. I got up and I prayed the way that I wanted to pray. I prayed about everything across this state. I prayed about the, the death of the unborn. I prayed about the attacks on the biblical family. I talked about how God needs integrity amongst people that are leaders in this particular place. And then afterwards they formed that line right down the aisle to shake hands with the people and I was going down shaking hands. Tiffany was in the back waiting on me and they were all thanking me for coming and one after another I heard these legislators tell me we're so grateful for your message on that radio every Sunday morning. I had no idea they even listened. 
But do you realize that in the day and time in which we live, we need somebody to be a mouthpiece for God. We need someone to be an echo for what they hear from what the King of Kings is saying, and not somebody of compromise and fear who's, who's worried about who'll be, how they'll be intimidated. If some people have changed their message because of the crowd in front of them. Well, if so-and-so gives a lot of money, or this person has a position of influence and authority, change and modify what you're saying so as not to offend. Not Elijah. He said, Ahab, there won't be any rain until I tell it to rain. Now, that's a man who has a relationship with God, because who would say that if they didn't believe God would back up this statement? The average Christian would never say anything like that. For him to say that, he knew that his words were going to impact every farmer in the nation of Israel. He knew that the famine could break the economy. He knew that there would be people pleading and praying with God, interceding for God to send a cloud to bring down rain. And as farmers and dads and family members were praying, heaven was bound up because of the words of one man. There won't be any rain. Until I say it. This man knew God. He, he wasn't intimidated by Ahab or Jezebel. And right there, face to face, nose to nose, he delivered his message. Could you do that? Could you do that to your children? Your grandchildren? Could you stand up to your parents on the issue of righteousness if you needed to? Would you be able to stand up to a local coach or a school board or somebody in the hospital and you're supposed to be advocating for your family and you feel like your family member's being abused? Could you stand up and for the basis or the sake of righteousness open your mouth and declare something? You need to be like Elijah. We need a company of people like that in these last days. We've got a generation of young people that don't mind sharing what they think, and they'll speak what comes to mind first. But we also need a generation of young people that will do that, but have a mind filled with the Word of God. Can you say amen? That's what's needed. And if we had people who weren't afraid of the face of Ahab, maybe we'd have a different culture, a different county a different nation. Well, Ahab doesn't necessarily have to be a particular man for us right now. Ahab could be the face of the culture in which we live. And the church certainly could be an Elijah with the voice of God declaring what is true. That's what's needed. We look around, our, our hearts break because of what we see, what we read. And Ahab and Jezebel will continue to do what they do until there's a company of people like Elijah that will stand up to them. But if we stand up to them, then just like Elijah, you've got to be prepared for the persecution that may come to you, that you may face. I don't know if some of you saw it in the news in the last 10 days or so, but it seems to me California keeps everybody on their knees in prayer. They seem to pass one crazy law after another. But they just ran one through the legislature that the governor signed that basically says if you have a husband and wife going through a divorce and there's a child or children involved, if those children are confused about their gender or identity or are choosing to be on the other side, of the biological identification that they have, that the courts now have the right to use that as the basis of taking the child from the parent. Can you imagine? If you're a dad trying to tell your daughter that you're a girl, or your mom trying to tell your son that you're a boy, and they're confessing because of what they learned somewhere else, that they're different, then that court will say, we don't want you in that house because that house is harmful to your identity. We need an Elijah. California needs a company of people like Elijah that will stand up and begin to proclaim what is true, what is biblical. And until the church gets its voice back and we get rid of this laryngitis that we've had for the past 40 years, we'll watch Ahab and Jezebel do whatever they want to do. We need God to heal our voice.
so we can open up our mouth and declare what is right and what is true. Not what is politically right, not what is culturally right, what is biblically correct. Because it's not about what the politics say, it's about what God has declared. As the Lord God of Israel lives. Now that's his belief. I want you to think about that, meditate on that sentence. As the Lord God of Israel lives, he acknowledges that there is a direct relationship between the nation of Israel and God. So he knows that. This is personal for him. He's the great shepherd. Israel represents the sheep. In this man's theology, they're not worshiping a dead God. They're not worshiping a God of stone or a God that's not alive. He says, this God liveth. I'm talking and speaking for him because he's alive in my heart. And he's alive around the nation. What do you believe about God? Is your belief about God that he's just someone locked in the pages of the book? Or do you really believe he lives inside of you? If you believe he's alive and that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then your life should reflect what you believe. In fact, I would dare say your life does reflect what you believe. Because if you don't believe he's alive, you'll live, like, you'll live with that belief. And your life will be manifested in the idea that God is dead, or God is a legend. But the one that has had close contact with him, had some kind of direct personal relationship with him, will find that our lives conform to who he is. What does that look like then? Like Elijah will confess God. I contend that if you're a Christian, your friends and your family members ought to know it. I believe that. Yeah, I, I don't see how that could be escaped. I don't see how you can hide it. I don't see how it could be unknown. If somebody spends day after day, hour after hour with you, they should know that you have some kind of faith or relationship with God. You said, well, Pastor, how do I exhibit the life of Christ, whether it's at home or on my job in particular, without running afoul of the powers that be who say that my life has to conform to a certain thing. Well, number one, you can live contrary to how the sinners live. If they have a language that is wicked and foul and vulgar and tell dirty jokes, you don't do that. You live a life that's totally different. And if they ever ask you why you don't do that, then you have an opportunity to say, because I believe God lives and he lives in me. You ask the question. I'm providing the answer. Put on exhibition for all of the world and all of the county and all of the region and all of the nation to know that you are different even though you live under the dominion of Ahab. When I look at what comes from the White House all the way down to the courthouses in our little counties, sometimes I'm shocked by the laws that are passed, what people believe privately, and then what, what, what they will pronounce publicly. But I do know whatever Ahab does, it does not have to influence the heart of Elijah. You can live for God. You can stand for the king. And so Elijah told the king, I stand before God. Now, there is a little verse in 2 Corinthians that tells us one day we must all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ's throne and give an account for the deeds done in our body, whether good or bad. That means there's a record being kept. Even if somebody tells you there is no record book in heaven and they tell you there's no record book in heaven of anything bad being kept, don't believe them because the Bible says whosoever's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into hell, which is then cast into the lake of fire. And the only way for people to end up there, there's got to be a record of what people are doing. God's paying attention. But here's what I want you to see. Live every day as though you know that you're standing before God. Yeah. Yeah, think about that. When you get in that car, think that Christ is in that car with you. Because He is. He's in your heart. Yeah. 
when when you're considering what you're going to watch on television, when you're considering where you're going to go, when you're considering your choices for music, when you're considering the friends that you have and what you're going to do with them, think about the fact that with every step you take, you're standing in the presence of God. He's watching you. This is where Adam and Eve sinned. They honestly believed that as big as that garden was when the Lord told them they could eat of every tree, they believed it. But when God told them they could eat of all of them but this one tree, they believed it up to a point when the serpent spoke to them and when the devil said, God lied to you, they believed the lie. They went right to the tree and ate the fruit. But do you realize God was standing there looking over their shoulder when they started to chew? And that's exactly how God is. We have to have a sense of his presence, a sense of it. How important is that? When we come into worship on the Lord's Day and we're singing and we're glorifying him, you're not worshiping God for the person standing next to you. And you ought not be worried about who's in front of you, who's behind you, or even who's beside you. What should matter to you is that I'm standing here presenting myself to God, and even though I'm down here in small-town rural America and on the south end of Red Cloud, God is still watching me as I worship. He's watching me. And when you get in your car and head back to Kansas, or head eastward or westward or northward, wherever direction you're going to travel, when you get on the road, always remember God is with you. There won't be any rain, he said. My God is alive, and I'm standing before him. I think that's a good position to take. I think it's nice to know that that God's eyes are on us. I can't say we, we really enjoy knowing that the penetrating gaze of God is on us any more than any kids like it when mom and dad is paying attention to what they do. I mean, most Most kids especially when they're a little mischievous, they, they prefer when mom and dad are occupied with other things. That's why when they get into mischief, they usually get into mischief when you're busy doing something. So you're not paying attention. Then you look up, you're trying to figure out where your son or your daughter is, only to realize it's been three minutes you hadn't seen them because they've scurried off somewhere else. They know exactly what's going on. They're watching you. They're looking at your eyes. It's just like predators out in the wild. Most predators, they, they, they will come after you when you're not looking at them. That's why some of those folks over in India and dealing with them bingo tigers, they'll put the masks on the back of their head when they're out there working in the fields because those tigers have a tendency not to attack if they think someone's watching them. Understand that. The gaze of God is powerful, and he's looking at us. Before whom I stand, before the face of God, before his eyes, there's not going to be any dew or rain. Now, I have not enjoyed the last few summers without the rain that we've had. And, and uh, unlike some of you who have perfectly manicured yards without even a weed in it, I mean, I, I get out there sometimes, cut my grass, or, or Caleb's out there cutting my grass. It just seems like we're just we're just cutting, mowing dirt, and dust is coming up in in every direction. And, and just like you, and just like the people in Scripture, I, I prayed and said, God, open the windows of heaven, give us dew, give us rain from heaven to be a blessing unto us and I think that's our position that should always be our position we should be determined to believe that God wants to give us fruitful lands in order to bless us but nobody behind the scenes knew that Elijah had had this personal contact with the king and said there will be no rain nobody knew it not a soul knew it but God but I think if God had broadcast this word across the nation, it would have broke the hearts of many people. They would have said, God, don't you love me? Don't you care about us? Because we talk like that today. If God doesn't answer our prayers as soon as we want them answered, sometimes we can turn to uh, anger. 
situation. We become offended. God, are you even concerned about me without even realizing sometimes that God is working behind the scenes because there's a greater project in motion here. He's trying to build something bigger, something powerful. And, and if a few people have to pass through some difficult times, they will pass through them. However, in the end, on the back end, God knows how to bring the blessing and promotion to you so it's almost like you never lost a thing. He can do that. And I don't understand all the ways of God. But I can tell you after he spoke to the king, the Bible says the word came to him again, again and said, Leave here and turn and go east. The man of God did so. You've got to be willing to follow the direction of God in the direction of God in which he tells you to go. He had to leave the crowds of the city and hide himself by a brook called Cherith. And to hide yourself means so you're not going to reveal yourself. I don't want you to be seen by anybody. That's what it means to hide. The Bible says of John the Baptist centuries later, that he was in the desert until the days of his revealing. It's wrong to hide yourself when God is telling you to reveal yourself, but it's also wrong to reveal yourself when God is telling you it's a time to hide, a time to be close to him, secluded with him. And the word cherith, that's exactly what it means. It means seclusion, a place of isolation, separated from other people. And God calls you to periods like that. When he pulls you away from the crowds, people won't always understand it. I wonder, what would your family think about you if one day you were having a family gathering or a family reunion and it had been on the calendar for some six months, but yet five or six days before that God begins to deal with your heart. So I don't want you to go to the reunion at all. I just want you to be isolated and spend your time alone with me. For 21 days, seek my face. I wonder how many people even have the backbone to look at their family and say, I won't be there. See? I wonder how many people would be able to say, I'm not going to make it to the school board gather. I'm not going to make it to the gym class or the school program. I'm not going to make it to this or that because God has called me just to spend time with him at this little brook called Cherith in isolation. I think when God wants to work on our hearts, sometimes he needs to do it when we're all alone. We learned in Sunday school this morning that when Jacob was left alone, that the angel of the Lord wrestled with him. There's some things God's never going to do for you in a crowd. He's only going to do for you when you're all by yourself. By yourself. Yeah. Spouse goes on a trip. They're gone for three or four days. And you get to thinking, okay, while they're gone, I'm going to vegetate. Just sit there in that chair, and I'm going to get caught up on all of the old Columbo episodes that I can. Then that power goes out. And God starts talking to you about him wanting to spend time with you. And sometimes God wants you all to himself, because whether or not you've read it before in the Bible, it says on more than one occasion that God is a jealous God. He's jealous over your time. He's jealous over your resources, he's jealous over the things that you have. And if he has to put you in a position where for a little while he can just have you all to himself, that, that's, a, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. You remember when you fell in love with the one that you love, and you know how jealously you guarded your time, you husbanded your time so that you would always have enough time for that person. You look at your calendar, make sure that at the end of this day or that day, there's always a little bit of time left for you to spend a half hour on the telephone or a couple of hours with them somehow during the week. And the reason you did that is because there was a love and an affection inside of you for that person. This is how God is. He's always willing to make time for you and for me. He's just waiting for us to make time for him. So when he looks at our calendar sometimes, and then our calendar says, okay, uh, Monday through Friday I'm working from 7 to 7. 
and then 7 p.m. on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I've got to drive an hour and a half here. I've got to drive an hour in this direction. I've got to be busy doing this, and then come Friday night, then I'm going to be here. Then come Saturday, I've got to make sure I'm at this tournament, or I've got to go boating, or I've got to do this or whatever, and then come Sunday, this is when all the family wants to get together. And all of our time is so occupied with all of these things, and God stands back. He's jealous because so many other people get to spend time with you rather than him. So what happens when you're jealous? When you're jealous of a person who is like a third party in your life, you know how our affections and our emotions are. We tend to look unfavorably upon the person we're jealous of. And when it's time for you to spend a little time with the one you love, and then the third party wants to come along, then you don't want to take them along for ice cream. And you don't want to have them in your life at that time. Because you're jealous and you're careful about your time. God's the same way. Can't, can't he just have you sometimes? Can't he just have you occasionally he doesn't ask for a whole lot from us he does ask for us to gather together and worship i know any day of the week anybody can worship but sunday is the lord's day this is the day we gather for worship to celebrate the resurrection of the lord jesus christ is it really that difficult when he's jealous i've met people i don't know that any of them are in here but i've met people that in the the raising of their kids they've said to me he said, you know, my kids came from, came from their toddler years all the way through high school. And I was there for all of them and supported them in all that they did. I never missed one game. I was in the bleachers every time. When it was time for them to play t-ball, I was there supporting them and waving and shouting when they were tracking field. I went wherever they went. If I had to drive three and a half hours, I went. I've even heard them tell me about when their kids played basketball or football in college. They'd drive to other states to be in the bleachers and make sure their kids knew they were supportive of them. I wonder, though, how many times did you miss church doing that? And I wonder through all of that if God ever wondered how supportive you were of him. Yeah. Sometimes God pulls us aside. He just wants to deal with us individually. And the thing that you love the most, sometimes he might ask you to put that on the altar to sacrifice it. Remember the story of uh, Isaac? He, he and Sarah wanted a baby so bad. Yeah. Now, he had Ishmael. He spent time with Ishmael. He thought Ishmael was going to be the promised one, and he was quite disturbed when he found out Ishmael was not the one God chose. And he grieved him. It really hurt him. But when Isaac got here, you can see that old man Abraham, he's proud as a peacock. Boy, he's rocking that baby. So, oh, this is going to be good. These years are going to be great. He taught that boy to fish. He taught that boy to hunt. He taught him how to build altars. I mean, he taught him all kinds of things. He spent a lot of time with that boy. But, but it got to a point where his love and affection for his son absolutely was great. So one day God came to Abraham and said, look, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take that boy that you love so much, and I'm going to show you a mountain, and I want you to go to the top of the mountain and take that son that you love, and I want you to sacrifice him. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine you're the one who gave him to me. Now you're asking me to give him back to you. Because the same Lord that gives, Job says the same one takes away. And Abraham, I wonder how he slept that night. I wonder if he did sleep a few nights before he saddled his donkey with all of his belongings to make that trip with his servant. I wonder if he slept at all after God said, I want you to bring the boy that you love to the top of the hill and take his life. I don't know if he did. But I know that next morning when he got up to leave, it says that he, 
and his servant and his son took off. You notice that nowhere in that story does it say that Sarah was there waving goodbye to them. I don't even know that he told Sarah. How would you tell your wife that the, the boy you longed for, that you desired for decades, is now here, and the God we serve, the God that I said told me to leave home and come here, has now told me to bring this boy to the top of a hill and sacrifice him. I'm sure Sarah would have wept profusely. She's not there waving goodbye. But he goes to the top of that hill, and he gets up there, and he's getting ready to take the life of his son until an angel speaks and tells him, don't do it. And God's talking through that angel, and he says, now I know that you fear me. See? Because you're willing to give up the very thing that you love. What do you say? I'm saying God's a jealous God. Yeah. And the thing that's so precious to you, the thing you love so much, sometimes could be the very thing that's coming between you and the king. You may not think it's an idol. You may not even think it's a problem, but God sits over here many times, and, and, and he's, he's grieved by some of the things that we do, just like in our individual relationships. There are times, and you've discovered this, there are times when you have offended people, and you never even knew that somebody was angry with you. You didn't discover it until after your kids made it into their mid-twenties. They didn't tell you. Then they told you one day when they were 30 about how it hurt them, how they were broken. Or your kids never knew that, that something they said when they were 17, it so hurted you and, and, and broke you that now they're grieved by what they said <clears throat> because they realize that 20 years later it still affects you when you think about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look at it again. Verse 2, I want you to hide yourself by the brook. Is God calling you to a place like that now? Is he talking to you about some private time, some private devotional time? Is he talking to you about a time of isolation, just a season? I didn't say forever. I said a season where you come home from work, and rather than parking in front of that television, you give God some time. Rather than allowing your mind to be confused by Fox News and CNN and all these other people that's on the on the place, that, that, that you just take your time and take the Bible and renew your mind with the Word of God. He's calling you towards that. It's important to have it. We all like vacation. People want to go on vacation for, for different things, but most times when I go on vacation, I take a good book with me because I'm just I'm looking for a time of isolation where I don't have to deal with a whole lot of other things. Yeah, we all need that. But it says here, you're going to drink from the brook that flows there because even though it's a place of isolation and it's not inhabited by a bunch of people, God still has a supply of water that passes through there. So God will sustain you even in those moments when he's drawing you unto himself to be alone. If you don't have a good devotional book <clears throat> to read, read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read a chapter a day. Read a few verses a day. Read a story a day, something like that. If you're looking for a good devotional to read to start your day, to conclude your day, it's hard to get better than Oswald Chambers' utmost for his highest. Yeah. Come to the Waters, James Montgomery Boyce. Morning and Evening, Charles Spurgeon. Great devotional. If you're looking for something that's really going to deal with your heart, even David Wilkerson has a devotion that was written before he passed away. But you, you need something that probes your heart, that deals with your life in Christ. How to draw closer to God while I'm alone, not waste my time. It says, it shall be that you'll drink of the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So in that location, God is able to sustain you. His bread and water with ravens. Now, ravens, as you know, are not the cleanest birds, and we've all seen ravens and blackbirds out here. And the blackbirds a little bit smaller, but, you know, if you're coming up and down the road sometimes and you see some roadkill, 
Every now and then you see like a dead skunk or a raccoon out there on the highway, and then you're coming down, and you can look down the road there, and you can see about five or six of those ravens that are out there on that highway, and they're enjoying that wonderful Nebraska buffet. I'm telling you, I mean, they're, they're happier about that skunk than you are. And that smell doesn't bother them at all. And uh, when you're coming along with that car, they are disturbed by your presence. Why are you interrupting this? I mean, they've got to pull that beak out of out of that all that blood, and then they've got to take off and fly and wait for you to pass by. And you can see them in your rearview mirror with that wide wingspan. They'll take off, fly in the direction, and before you get a quarter of a mile down the road, they've all come right back, and they're there again. And can you imagine your God taking a bird like that? bringing you bread and flesh to eat in the morning and evening. I just think I would have kept fasting. But I know what this is teaching. You're hungry enough, you'll eat whatever God supplies. There, There are a few of you in here that ordinarily on your own, you would never put squirrel meat to your lips. You get hungry enough. You'll put squirrel meat and anything else in them lips. You get hungry enough. He said, oh, no, this is absolutely no way. I'm not ever. I've never tasted raccoon. You get hungry enough. You'd be surprised what happens when, when life brings you to a point of isolation and you don't have a lot of things. You'd be surprised what you'd eat. I've met people that have told me never in their life will they ever eat anything out of a can. They've made enough money to buy everything organic and all kinds of expensive food, but I've seen situations and circumstances change in people's life to where I'm telling you they begin to love what's out of a can. Canned peaches, oh, my God, they're excited about where before they turned their nose up. But when you are at a brook... And God has brought you to a place called Cherith. You'll eat if you want to live. If you know God has told you to come to the brook, then you have to know God's not going to give you anything that's going to destroy you. But sustain you. Remember, this was only for a season. This was not his diet for the rest of his life. For a season. And I wonder with some of you that are in here today, when you look back when you first got married, what your life was like, be interesting to know what some of your meal times were like when you first got married. Or to know what your diet was like when you were single, maybe in college. Maybe you didn't necessarily have some of the resources and crutches to lean on when you were out on your own. I met a lot of college kids when I was in the Marine Corps that they lived on those ramen noodles. How many times can you eat them oriental ramen noodles? As many times as I can buy them when they're 35 cents a pack. Yeah, that was the diet that they had, and they were happy to have it and didn't complain about it. And praise God, you, you see people when they didn't have a whole lot, whether it was ravioli or some kind of a hot dog or something, they were glad to get it, choked it down, and praised the Lord for it. Maybe foods you'd never eat today. I mean, when I was a single guy in the military, somebody said home-cooked meal, I was there. I mean, I mastered the art of getting into somebody's house to get a home-cooked meal. You know, when I came out here and didn't have any any money at all, but just had a whole lot of love for God and love for you, some of you remember, I, I mastered the art of how to get a home-cooked meal. I just showed up when it was time to eat. And I'd arrive a half hour before. I'd get there 45 minutes when I knew folks would be in the kitchen putting it all together, and I'd just say, oh, I was in the area. thought I'd come by thinking about you. I was in the area of that kitchen. I want to make sure I was going to be right there, get some of that some of that good food. And you folks were gracious and patient with me and had enough sense to know this boy is hungry. If we don't feed him, he might starve to death out here. But yeah. 
you do a lot of things in early years and for a season in your life that you may not do, may not need to do later on. And I think that's what this story teaches us. That in humility and submission to God's will, you've got to be willing to take whatever God gives you. From a raven? Yeah. You ever met somebody that needed money, needed employment, you knew they needed a job, but they look you right in the face and say, that job is beneath me. But you know what? If you've got kids and you're hungry, if you've got to make a sandwich for somebody at Subway to feed your family and keep the lights on, then you better get behind that counter and make that sandwich. Because the same God that opened up that door can turn around and open up a greater door for you. But you've got to be at that brook in order for God to sustain you for that season. You don't have to live there forever. He'll open up other avenues. But you do whatever you need to do. And our generation that we live in right now needs to know this because so many of them turn their nose up at the idea of having to work. You mean you think I really want to work that hard eight hours a day? Oh, my goodness. You, you want me to have a job where I sweat? That's why I went to college. I had somebody tell me that. That's why I went to college, so I wouldn't have to do all of that kind of stuff. Well, you can go to college, and you can still fall behind in life because of pride. Because of pride. I tell people from time to time in one of the other towns where we have a church, the wealthiest man in town, wasn't a college grad. Wealthiest man in town was the one that started and owned the heating and air conditioner company in town. Think about that. That was the wealthiest man in town. But he wasn't the wealthiest man in town simply because he had a heating and air conditioner. He's the wealthiest man in town because he just outworked everybody. And he labored. And he put in time that other people didn't want to put in. And when we got to a place where he had enough employees and stuff like that, then he could sell it off and, and he could retire. But, you know, you can't get ahead without taking the time to, to labor at what you have been appointed to do in your task. It's true. Yeah. I've had plenty of people that say to me, oh, my goodness, I'd love to come out to rural America and preach the gospel. I mean, you look around here all in different directions. You don't find a lot of pastors who are able to do it full-time, because many of them are bivocational. Nothing wrong with that. But but, but I, I can tell you how, how, how it started with us. When Tiff was working at Head Start in Superior, I, I pretty much just lived in nursing homes and doing Bible studies in different places. And preaching in as many places as I could just about every day of the week. I can remember laying there in the bed and, 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 and holding the Bible and reading it. And she said to me, you know, I mean, we, this, this is good what we're doing, but, you know, you're just laying in here. All you're doing is thinking about the next sermon. And that, that's, that's what I was doing. But the whole point of it was to get out and tell folks about the king and people know about the church and to see souls change and to preach the gospel to people. And then one thing leads to another thing, then another church, then another thing to another thing, then preaching the gospel, then going on radio, then people hear what we're doing, people's hearts are touched and stirred, then people start sowing and giving. But that stuff didn't happen with me sitting at home watching Annie Griffith every day. Because I was laboring in the vineyard. And it's the same thing with you. Whatever God's going to do for you in your life, you've got to be busy doing it. Because the Bible says that the person who has an industrious life, their life tends toward plenteousness. But it says that the person who lays there asleep and turns and tosses on their bed during the daylight hours, poverty comes to them like an armed man. And this is why I think the Bible says if a man or woman won't take care of their family, they're worse than an infidel. And this is why I think it's so difficult for many of you in here who work very hard for your money, and you work very hard to take care of your family, built your house, paid your mortgage, paid it off, for you then to realize that there are a whole lot of people in this country who don't work at all, and some of them receive more benefits than you do. That's why. 
You've been at the brook. You've been listening to God. You've done what God has told you to do. You departed the brook. You went back into society, did the things God has told you to do. You worked 25 hours in a 24-hour day. And yet here's somebody else. They sit around watching Oprah Winfrey all day long. They don't bother to leave the house. Yet for every kid they have out of wedlock, they can get thousands of dollars. See? I'm telling you that in this world we live in, there's got to be an Elijah company of people that open up their mouth and say to Ahab, this isn't right. Yeah, this isn't right. The culture is going in the wrong direction. We need a life of holiness, purity, not perfection, but one of purity, righteousness, where People that actually love God and walk with God, they see the blessings of God in their life rather than us having to watch people who despise God and hate God prosper because of our inability to open up our mouths. We need an Elijah, an Elijah company. And so I'm praying that God will speak to all of our hearts, that God ministered to us in this day in which we're living, that we would be a voice for God. Because that's all he needs is a voice. That's all. He needs a voice. If if he can allow us to speak, he can touch the ears of people to hear. But if he comes to live in us, he expects to be able to animate himself through us. With our hands, he can touch people, embrace people. With our feet, he can go into different places and tell folks, have the folks hear about who he is. With our ears, we're able to hear what's going on in this world, but also hear what God is saying to us about this world that we're living in, but don't don't become dull or desensitized to the things that's taking place in this culture. This is what Ahab and Jezebel want. They want a people that are basically say, look, it is what it is. We can't do anything about these people, and we might as well just go ahead and learn to take care of ourselves. That's what Ahab and Jezebel want. They want people to look and say, look, these folks have been unrighteous for a long time. And there's nothing we can do to change it. I saw one time that story where uh, Mr. Kennedy, years ago, uh, I can't remember all the details, but a young lady was killed. He was with her. It might have been in a car or whatever it was, but he didn't notify the authorities in time, but let his family know. But somehow or another, it was concealed. He didn't do any time. There was no trouble. There was no problem. But I've oftentimes thought about that lady's family. I wonder what they thought about all of that. They probably thought we're not as connected as the Kennedys. And because we're not as connected, then there's not too much we can do. And they probably made them folks feel like that. But in either case, I know this for a fact, people that are in positions of power believe they ought to be privileged. I know that. I know that. And that's not to say that people in position of power don't have access and relationship with people. And when you know people, there's nothing sinful about you, how do I want to say it, making use of people's gifts and talents because you're related to them. I get people to call me, ask to do a wedding or a funeral or something like that. They don't know me sometimes, but I should say they they do know me, but I'm not connected with their family, but sometimes I've done things with them just because of the relationship. There's nothing wrong with that. But when a person uses a position of power in order to conceal iniquity and to do what's wrong, that's wickedness. Yeah, that's wickedness. And I pray that God will forever help us as a fellowship to be the kind of people that open up our mouth and say, that's unrighteous. That's unrighteous. I, I know they may be accepting that here. They may say it's okay here, but it's unrighteous because of what he said. Not because of what pastor said, but because of what he said. Amen? Amen. Come on, let's stand. Thank God for an Elijah-type people. Who knows what that next generation is going to be like. But I confess here and now, that that our kids, the ones that grew up in this church hearing the word of God preached, they're going to be kids that stand for God and walk for God and love God. Not going to be, we got communion? Oh, we do have communion. Didn't know that. Okay, there we are. Forgot all about that. Thank you for reminding me. 
we'll 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 serve communion this way.